Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context. And before we start talking to our guest, Tom Carroll, today, I wanted to make a shout out to Crossway Books. Crossway Books publishes a great lineup of both popular Christian texts as well as what I call textbooks. They have been so kind to provide in context with authors and author reviews. I don't want to overlook an opportunity to to shout out to Crossway Books. They have a great catalog. We have other publishers who have also been very kind to In Context. And today we have Tom Carroll on the broadcast. He and David Murray have written a book called A Christian's Guide to Mental Illness. And as always, everything we chat about will be in the show notes. So if you have interest in this text after we talk about it, there's a way for you to get the right title and you can purchase it as always anywhere books are sold. Tom earned his master's from Wheaton College. He's a psychologist at the Pine Rest, which is a Christian mental health center in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You got some snow up there today, Tom? No snow. We're all in good shape. We thought we were going to have some at the end of the week, but that's completely off the table now. So we're still enjoying some pleasantries here. Enjoy it while it lasts, right? Tom is also (laughs) involved with Faith Community Church. He works there as he connects Christian organizations with the faith community. So we're glad you're on the broadcast today. I want to jump in real quickly, and let's talk first of all. One of the things you do in this book that I found fascinating, and I Correct me if I'm wrong, you're the counselor and the psychologist as well as David, but I don't think I've ever seen anyone differentiate between normal and abnormal or ordinary and let's call extraordinary sadness, depression, suffering. So I want to be sure we cover that and throw that out as a tease for our listeners and viewers. But start always, why did you and David take this project on? Well, David, uh, years ago, was a pastor at our congregation, and he and I have had a lot of conversations. He's had a lot of interest in mental health topics. So we've coordinated with a lot of different projects over the years and different situations. He was approached by an individual, Norman, then Mass Bergen, several years ago, and said, well, he had a passion for this book that he would like to have written. I approached David, and David approached me and said, Tom, you need to do this. And I said, David, I'm not going to do this unless uh, you're going to help me, because the last opportunity I had to write was my thesis back at Wheaton College over 30 years ago. <laughs> and that was enough, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was done on an electric typewriter. Type, yeah, so mine too. Yeah. You bet. So, no, we've had a real passion being able to serve the body of Christ, particularly those hurting folks that, you know, struggle with mental illness and uh, a lot of things that people, I think, probably have tried to ignore. They just don't understand. Our goal is to put this on a reachable shelf so the lay person can understand what they're going through, perhaps, or how to minister to folks in their life and their congregation. I'm a little older than you, probably David and I are similar age, but one of the things I noticed in 40 plus years of working in churches and Christian ministry, the exponential growth in counseling and people seeking out therapy, is this a good thing? Well, I hope so. You write that one in five people will seek out help at some point. That's correct. Pretty big numbers. I think in the past that a lot of people did seek out help. But uh, probably we're doing that apart from, you know, the Christian community and apart from their church. So part of uh, David and I's passion is that uh, recapturing that ministry within the local congregation 
as well as plugging Christians in with Christian psychologists, Christian social workers, Christian psychiatrists. Let me ask the cynics question. Before the plethora of therapy models, and Larry Crabb, of course, was from an evangelical, fundamental Bible-believing view, he was sort of a, I mean, the Christian counseling therapy models would swell under his time at both Grace and then later at Colorado Christian University. So I have to ask for the cynic, can't we just sort of plow through our problems, the struggles, and do we really need months and years of therapy and medication? And where is health and diet and exercise and community and hard work play into this? Because a lot of my generation would approach it that way. Well, I think you're absolutely right that one of the things that we want to do is address someone holistically. So diet, exercise, and nutrition, one of the things I've addressed in the book, and David and I, the three, and I'm going to give you my air quotes, most important pills that you take before you go to the pharmacy. So exercise, nutrition, and sleep. But yes, certainly some of those uh, grandma's homespun remedies are sometimes neglected, I think. But being able to have folks be able to understand, to be able sometimes to guide through, hopefully makes uh, life just that much easier and hopefully that much more effective as someone deals with some difficulties in their life, whether it's a situational depression or, again, maybe a more serious form of mental illness. Let me play the cynic one more time. You know, if I hear a lot of my friends going to therapy and they're talking about their therapist and they're talking about the books they're reading and they're talking about EDMDR and they're talking about all these different things, attachment theory, all of a sudden I'm pulled into that like a slipstream and I go, maybe I need counseling. Maybe something's wrong with me. Well, I don't think you need to be a cynic at all. And one of the things you had said in the previous question is, does somebody need months and years? And I would say probably the majority of folks are not going to need months and years. Now, there are some that may need that ongoing and more intensive support. But thinking about EMDR or all the attachment theory, they're just simply tools to help with the, the person's difficulty. So Think about it like in your toolbox at home, whether you have a hammer or a screwdriver or what have you, they can be helpful and probably, and I know some of my colleagues are going to cringe as I say this, most of the modalities are about as effective as uh, the other one. So not one that is far superior to another. Let me ask you about the local church because you interject this a lot in the text. On the one side is most of my life was involved with local churches. And when you're a smaller church and the church is sort of, you know, the church needs to do this, the church needs to do that, the church needs to provide counseling and be involved in politics and pro-life efforts and therapy and, oh yeah, children's ministry and youth ministry and better worship services. And, And at smaller churches especially, it feels like we always go to the local church and say the local church should be doing fill in the blank. So help me out there, help our friends out there, because it seems like we always, and I don't say lay blame, but we turn to the church for resources they may not have. Again, when we're talking about the church, we're talking about the called out one. So when okay. I think about the church, I'm not just thinking about the senior pastor. I'm thinking about, you know, the whole gathering of the covenant community. So in our book here, we're really interested in, you know, helping 
the young person, that helping the middle-aged, helping the elderly be able to take part in that ministry of caring for one another. Let's go to this long-term for a few minutes, because you and I both have a lot of acquaintances, the friends that have been in, and, and I would call it kind of you know tune-up counseling, where they might go for a few weeks, a few sessions, they might work on, here's some books to read, here's a support group you might check out. And that seems to be a tune-up type thing. We see that in marriages, predictably, at five, seven, ten years, this type of thing, right? But what differentiates that from the person that might need long-term help and long-term therapy? Well, I think what we're looking at is, you know, is how severe is the impairment that uh, somebody is having and, you know, how long has it been going on? So we're looking at patterns that a person may have. There's the person that, you know, may come into my office and maybe in their midlife and they really never had a depressive episode. They've got a lot of good support. They've got a lot of good habits, but they need just a few sessions with me to if you will, get them over the hump. Now, let's take the second person. uh, Well, again, hypothetically, grew up in a very tough home situation. Perhaps they've had a history of abuse and neglect. They've had a lot of rejection. And, you know, I'm asking them about the history of their depression. They've been dealing with this since junior high. Now they're in middle age and they're missing work. They're struggling just to be able to function in everyday life. And so we're really looking at, again, the symptoms, we're looking at the patterns, we're looking at the individual, what resources they have in their life will determine how much, you know, a person like myself might need to be involved. I was talking to one of my pharmacists about two or three years ago, and I asked him, I said, what are your top 10 prescriptions? It was very telling you know, we're here in Middle Tennessee, Williamson County specifically, the number of people on antidepressants was astonishing. I'm sure many people benefit. I have a couple of close friends that have been on antidepressants for years, and they said they couldn't function without them. But I have to scratch my head again and go, that seems like a lot of medication for people that maybe, let me just leave it there. How do you respond to that? Are we over-prescribing these drugs? Well, I think Probably. I don't have an MD or a DO behind my name. So this is just strictly coming from the counseling standpoint. One of the things that my philosophy is, is that medications are not going to necessarily cure depression, anxiety, and bipolar disorder, but they may be like a good pair of basketball shoes, give you the needed support and grip on the court in order to become a good basketball player. And so sometimes the medications can function in just that way, where somebody is really struggling to grasp the coping techniques, how to manage their mental illness. Medicine can give them that needed support and grip to get them off to a a good start. So if a person's listening to you and me and they're going, you know, I've had on and off stuff since high school. I get anxious. I get afraid a lot. Maybe it's not normal or ordinary. How do I find a good therapist? Because again, as a pastor, in my experience with both small churches and very large churches, resources are interesting. Typically, a large church might even have a counseling ministry, or they might have, in my case, several churches, a Rolodex of trusted people that I had I'd sought out guys like Tom and David and other even psychiatrists and said, I need to know if I send someone from our church, what are you going to do? How are you going to approach this? 
you know, I did that sort of running point, but people don't always have that. And it's almost common sense to you and me, but there are people that are going to listen to you and me and they're going to go, I need a therapist or I need to talk to somebody. How do you start, Tom? Well, I'm always going to start with, again, local church. So hopefully, you know, your pastor, your associate pastor, some of your elders or deacons may be able to, you know, lend a good listening ear and provide some guidance. Hopefully they do have some, as you put it, in your Rolodex. I guess that's dating both of us, some of our younger listeners. <laughs> it still means a lot to, to me, though. <laughs> it still means a lot to me. I can see it on my desk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. And I'm OCD, so I typed all the information and put it in my <laughs> <laughs> oh, Nice. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Sorry. Yeah, but it, it, I do feel that struggle. Because depending on what the area is, there may not be a local person that we can get in touch with. You know, how does somebody, you know, I guess network in that regard? That's hopefully where a pastor and churches have some connections between them that you're able to connect with the church that's 20 miles down the road and say, hey, who do you have? Who do you have on staff? Who do you refer to? So hopefully there can be some of that. During the pandemic, sure. counseling was 100% online, and now we'll kind of do kind of a mix. I've got patients that are, well, I'm in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area, but I've had patients all the way up in kind of the Keweenaw Peninsula of Michigan. So we're talking about, about if we're driving distance, about nine hours. Wow. But, you know, that is available, you know, for folks that, you know, they may not have somebody you know, 20 minutes down the road. So let's go forward. Then I get a name. I go as an individual and I go one, two, three, four times. What should I look for? Because if I'm hurting, I've got to have some relational capital, some trust with this person. I don't have a better term for it. Look for chemistry that I connect with this individual. And I feel like A, they care. B, I'm not just another person on their schedule. C, I can really expose my feelings to this individual. Let's say one of these and other indicators, you're the counselor, just seem a little off. And I get a a check or I feel anxious about even. What do you say to a person? How long do you try, if that's fair, a therapist before you say this is not working? Or is that just shopping around to find well, what no, I want. not at all. One of the things that uh, you're, you're hitting on is really important. Now, somebody makes an appointment with a counselor first session, there's going to be an assessment and it's, uh, you know, getting an overview of what's going on in uh, your life, your situation. And usually you're going to be able to know, do I, you know, within a, just a couple of visits, do I have a good connection with this person? Is the chemistry correct? And most everybody that I know in this field, we're not offended and we're usually going to be probably fairly sensitive to, I don't feel like I'm making a connection. Mm. So then I'm going to get my Rolodex and be able to say, I think you may be a little bit better fit for, and I can, you know, refer uh, to that individual. Now, from a, a licensure and oversight, you can do that. I think some states would be a little, I know in the MD realm, patient dumping is a real problem that even if you feel this patient would be better served by someone, it's pretty precarious to say, I want you to go see Dr. So-and-so. 
And so we do it, if you will, more of a secure handoff. Okay. Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking of a couple individuals that I have with our Pine Rest system that, you know, we regularly will, you know, be able to contact each other if, you know, somebody comes in with a diagnosis or a difficulty that may not be part of my wheelhouse. My uh, friend Doug, that's just a couple clinics away, perhaps that's more in his wheelhouse. So in real time, I can get on my, you know, team's instant message to say, hey, do you have room? This is individual. Mm -hmm. And so we're not going to be doing it patient dump because that certainly does no one a good service. Let's go to this ordinary and a couple of times you call it normal and abnormal and sometimes you call it ordinary. Walk us through an example. If someone comes in and let's say they're depressed, what's quote normal or ordinary versus abnormal? Kind of an ordinary depression we might say is maybe a case of blues. So somebody that has gone through some difficult times and, you know, listen to, you know, life circumstances and uh, perhaps there's grief mixed in, you know, I may be able to say, it sounds like what you're experiencing is exactly what I would expect you to be experiencing in this situation. And in fact, if you weren't experiencing this, I would mm. say that there would be something seriously wrong with you. For instance, the prophet Ezekiel, he had to do some very strange things, but one of those situations, his wife died, and God said, you can't mourn for her. And we would have to say, wow, that's abnormal. Of course, you know, somebody is going to be depressed. Somebody is going to be uh, very lonely. They're going to go through some pretty severe time of adjustment. If they're not, we would think that would be pretty strange. So that's on kind of the normal side. Now, the abnormal side we might say uh, somebody has had, you know, sadness, much too much sadness for far too long. So it just continues to hang on without relenting, kind of like this uh, evil monster to just keep beating a person up and they struggle to function in their everyday lives. When you look across the scope of yours and, and David's ministry, top two or three reasons a person seeks out therapy. Probably there has got to be some kind of internal discomfort. There's a recognition that I'm not managing life well, recognizing I'm not able to manage it well on my own. That would probably be one. The second is that they've had friends, they've had family members that have recognized you're not doing so well, and they've you know, really given that urge, that push to say, you really need to get some professional assistance with this. So, yeah, there's a, particularly us guys, we don't ask for help much the same as, you know, before we had GPS on our phones, we're just going to keep going without asking for directions because I got this. Our wives know nothing's further from the truth. Patiently, they endure. Well, eventually they say, you're pulling over and you're going to get some direction. <laughs> and the same is true with a lot of times going to our family doc, going to our pastor, going to see a counselor. Men particularly are probably a little bit more reluctant or resistant. I want to go back a little bit because one of the questions I had, when Larry Crabb was rising to prominence, there was a huge attraction to his model and his training system. And I had friends that changed careers and, and went to the program and so forth and so on. 
the surge in that I'm a little bit of a cynic sometimes and everybody's running after something. Oh, why? You know, if it's that good, why? I want to be careful that we don't just whiplash back and forth to the current trend or ism or ology. Those are attracted to therapy to me. There's an interesting kind of a personality. A lot of times they themselves were helped. And then they say, oh, I think I want to be a counselor. And that may not always be the right path. Or am I just being too cynical? I think, well, particularly when we think about a Christian person, we want to help them discern what are the gifts, talents, the abilities that God has blessed them with, and what that motivation is, perhaps life circumstance that has kind of pushed them into that circumstance. So yes, we all do pick professions for one reason or another. And again, hopefully it's with good discernment rather than just going on some kind of fad. I think certainly yeah, we're both life experienced enough. We've seen a lot of different fads, whether it's fads in technology, whether it's fads in counseling, whatever it might be. But yeah, we're going to be a little reluctant to say, well, we want to do so with understanding. You mentioned in your three, I believe, my physician, who's also a very close friend, talks about the big five. He includes sleep, and he also includes relationships because he said you have to, we say community sometimes an overused word, but you have to have people that you trust. I often use three rings of friendships, and the ones that are the most intimate who know my secrets and I know theirs, and there's a trust that's been demonstrated over decades in my case. Some of these friendships are 40 plus years old. Not everybody has that. And when you don't have that, for lack of a better term, support structure where, you know, I can call Dave or Jim or any of these number of guys, George, and say, man, I'm really in the pits today. I'm angry. I'm livid. I'm sad. I'm discouraged. I'm fat and lazy. And we have this back and forth. As my friend Dave Gibson says, I don't know if you need a dope slap or an encouragement. (laughs) (laughs) You know, <laughs> not everybody has that. And so I realized that I didn't know any different. And so to me, Tom, it was like, I have to have this to survive. That said, I've noticed people that struggle with depression, anxiety, whatever you want to label, you want to use as an illustration, they gravitate towards the wrong community. If you're a single person, not to be indelicate, you probably don't need to hang out just with divorced single people. You probably need some good married couples in your life. You probably need people that have been down the road. And the other is also true. Sometimes I need to be around single people to have a baseline. Help me out there again, because it seems to me almost an extreme. People go one way or the other, and I don't think either is healthy. If all I hang around are people that are discouraged or people that struggle with anxiety, I'm probably not moving forward, or am I wrong? You are 100% on target. I guess when you think about, uh, yeah, those relationships, vitally important for, again, our emotional well-being, but also our spiritual well-being. And so one of the things that probably in your ministry you've recognized is that people that struggle more with anxiety or depression tend to isolate themselves or, if you will, kind of separate themselves more from the herd, if you will. And so it's just that self-perpetuating cycle that uh, depression, anxiety, they tend to feed on themselves. So the more somebody is feeling anxious, the more they tending to avoid. And the more avoidance, they feel lonely and then they feel more depressed. And so they have less energy to 
pursue those relationships. So yeah, within the uh, Christian church, I'm going to keep circling back to that as uh, I think we do in the book. That is, you know, our people. That's our community. Hopefully, you know, we're having our Christian church family. Hopefully we're having biological family. But, you know, we have that circle around us in order to, you know, keep us healthy. And we're also then also trying to help others stay healthy. Not only are they my people, but I'm their person as well. Just to follow up a little bit on that. So you have a client and he or she is loathe to get out of that isolation, let's say. And there's sort of an interesting cycle with people that do withdraw because they feel insecure and then some of the language and therapy and, and the labeling, unintended consequences, I'm an introvert. And so I don't go to parties. I don't socialize, even with Christians, because I don't want to talk to people. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be a wallflower in a room. And it almost seems like a very difficult cycle for them to break. Or am I off on this? Well, there is kind of, I think, sometimes misperception Society, I think, has celebrated the extrovert uh, personality. However, the research that I've come across would indicate that more than 50% of us are more introverted. So in other words, sometimes people that are isolating, they'll hide behind, well, I'm an introvert. Well, you're in good company. So the way I think about an introvert versus an extrovert If I'm, you know, an extrovert, I'm going to get energy from being around 300 of my closest friends than, you know, being around a party with 300 of my closest friends. On the other hand, somebody that's more introverted, yeah, being able to be around a close-knit group of friends where we're actually going to go much deeper and share more intimately. So some people say, yeah, it's going to push me outside of my comfort zone. Yes. As a psychologist, I guess is my role at church as well, as an elder, that's my job is to try to keep pushing people to say, this is God's design and we want to follow that. And yes, it's going to be uncomfortable, but the more you face some of those fears, the easier it becomes to overcome fears. You and David chose to use the word mental illness in the title, and I thought that was kind of bold in a way that there wasn't sort of a saran wrap, like, you know, processing your feelings as a Christian or something, you know, let's just call it mental illness. Now that said, is there a danger or a caution in identifying myself as a person, you know, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm OCD, I'm PTSD. Again, because in my relationships with people, it seems like they land on that And as a pastor and hopefully a a fairly good friend of folks, I want to be patient and kind with them. But I also want to say, don't identify yourself as this. You seem like you guys work pretty hard at moving that your identity isn't an illness. Correct. Absolutely. So, yes, people may have an illness. But again, that illness doesn't define who they are as an individual, nor does it define, hopefully, their whole existence. Yeah, I know that uh, probably both of us have had some physical maladies. Again, that's not something that we say, well, I am my back problems or I am a heart problem, whatever that might be. It's, no, I have this and it's my job to manage that the best that I know how. 
Go a little further on that because, again, when you're in therapy, the therapeutic language takes over. I had friends in ministry that in their preaching, their preaching became therapeutic. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it felt odd to me that it's almost a catharsis. And then again, you're starting to attract feelings based on, it's almost like a weird transference from the pulpit to the pew. When I used to talk about homiletics, I would tell people, you want to be transparent, but not naked. <laughs> In name. Because I struggle, I get mad, I get angry, sitting, I have arguments, you know, we argued about raising children, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't want to, you know, take my clothes off emotionally in front of an audience. And you as a counselor can't do that. Correct. And I think you know where I'm going with this, but there is a, it's like ice cream. The first time you have, this is really good. I want to talk about how good it tastes. So we start talking a lot in therapeutic language. And I have a friend that talks about self-care all the time. I have to do self-care all the time. And that to me is off-putting. And it almost seems like that's a new layer of struggle for that individual. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've got uh, probably way more thoughts than we can start to uh, talk about here. (laughs) But, yeah, when it comes to, you know, church and preaching, one of the things we want to be is word-centered, word-driven. So one of the things we, uh, I think, you know, and I've heard you speak many times that uh, we want to exegete a text. You know, we want to go all the way through a text. Now, there may be room for an illustration or two. However, you know, if I'm speaking to our congregation, if you're speaking, I don't want them to look at to say who is the speaker and they're identifying with that. No, we want to point them to Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to put a quick plug in for my co-author, David Murray. One of the books that he had written a bunch of years ago is Jesus on Every Page. And I referred a lot of people to that. And so no matter where you are on the scriptures or if, you know, again, from the pulpit, we want to echo the request that some of the Jewish folks did to the disciples. Then they said, sir, we want to see Jesus. People don't want to necessarily see pastor or you fill in the blank because we have feet of clay. Just left to myself, I'm going to lead people in the wrong direction. Now, if I keep pointing them back to the word and, again, using some illustration, hopefully that helps them grasp whether it's a, a gospel call or a call to sanctification, call to holiness, growth, missions, evangelism. That's what we want to certainly portray. Let's go back a little bit to identity for a moment. My good friend Christopher Yuan and I, when talking about the LGBTQAI+, challenge that we're up against in churches and society is we're pretty adamant that your identity is either in Christ or not in Christ, that your identity isn't a label, a designation, a self-selected pronoun. In that, I'm saying I'm also a sinner, my identity as a sinner, and I need a savior. Now, when it comes to mental illness, is it sin at some point, or are there iterations when I stay in that that it becomes sinful? Well, I think certainly, you know, we make that point in the book as well, that we all deal with, I guess, what we would describe as original sin, that inherited guilt and sin nature that we got from uh, Adam. So, yeah, as a result of that sin, we all have maladies. We're no longer perfect. And so sometimes we may get ill. This time of year, people are getting their flu shots. 
Now, is getting the flu sinful? I would argue, no, it's not. However, it may be an occasion to sin, or it may be an occasion to rely closer on you know the Holy Spirit's strength and push me closer to reliance on Jesus Christ. So with every uh, malady, again, whether it be a common cold, whether it be a depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, opportunity to grow spiritually or possibly to, if you will, rebel spiritually. Mm. And you talk about that in your book as well. Share a little bit. We use a lot of Christianese. I say the way to defeat sin is to submit to the Holy Spirit's control and self-control. It takes both of those because I can't just do it in the flesh, but I have to acknowledge I have a responsibility, you know, not to, you know, travel into that sin, whatever might pull me. If I was in your office right now and you say, Michael, you need to rely on the Holy Spirit's power, what would you tell me? Sinclair Ferguson, he wrote a book all about sanctification, a wonderful book that I have recommended to quite a few different individuals. Now, yeah, I love books, and I've, if uh, my tr- camera had turned over there, you well, would that, see— Well, that's what pastors and counselors do. Here's a book you need to read. I'm what we're doing right now. Here's a book you need to read. <laughs> that's our answer for everything. There's a book well, on that. The deal is I can only, for instance, with my people that come for counseling, I can spend an hour a week. That's one hour out of 168, or if every two weeks— I don't know that I have a tremendous amount of impact in just 60 minutes, but if I can put a resource in their hands that can continue to reinforce some of these ideas, I think that's kind of helped solidify and help really grow the person's understanding for that. So closer reliance on the Holy Spirit, I'm going to be guiding folks to pick up some devotional materials that are going to get them into the Word and hopefully plugging them in with some kind of Bible study that they're, again, being able to mm-hmm. be accountable and being able to plug in with some mature Christian folks. Yeah. You know, it, it almost seems pedantic, and I often encourage people I'm very frequently in the pulpit, I would say, you know, God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people, that you, you must be in the Word. That's our authority. You must be acknowledging I need the Spirit's power and control in my life. And you got to be around people that are like-minded or there's no hope for change. It's a bit cliche, but it has served me well. And if I'm not in the word, if I'm not praying and it's so pedantic, but people don't pray or they use meaningless repetition. And we've used a lot of resources over the years. Uh, Ken Boa's little handbook to prayer has been a favorite of mine. Valley of vision has been a favorite of mine. Strength and joy is when my wife likes but it's just a, a way of getting your nose into a book to make you think differently, which in a way isn't therapy. Thinking differently about your situation, understanding feelings don't necessarily have to control me, that I can think correctly. Again, pedantic, rudimentary. You know, if a person is in the word, they're praying, they're around other Christians, they seem to do a lot better than those who are withdrawn, who are isolated, who are depressed, who are angry, who don't, yeah, I read the Bible and it doesn't, it's boring. I don't like prayer. It never worked. And we get these auto responses that are almost like, well, then you really don't want to feel different. You don't want to change. I'm prattling, but the therapist can now respond and correct me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think certainly sometimes we run into folks that have lost a sense of hope. 
our goal is to try to help give them some real hope, not necessarily going to want to, you know, try to, you know, give some trite phrases that are kind of devoid of meaning, you know, patronizing kind of responses. But uh, again, well, I have a hard time praying. Well, read a passage and pray through that passage. And if you're still not quite sure, God's given his, the prayer book of many saints uh, in the Psalms. Probably all of human emotion is somehow expressed in those. Yes. And so certainly being able to use the Psalms as prayers and meditation is certainly going to help with that sanctifying process. Final thought on the text and uh, encouraging people who might need to take a look at it. Well, uh, we have written uh, the book as a catechism, I guess we might say, of question and answer. The book is not necessarily meant that somebody would sit down and read it front to back, but being able to use it more as a reference book. So pick out the question that most accurately reflects uh, the struggle or the, you know, the question that's coming up being able to hopefully give some quick reference as to "Mm, how do I think through this? How do I perhaps pray through this? How do I uh, show up emotionally, spiritually, physically when I recognize somebody in my life is really struggling? So yeah, we've written that hopefully not only for the pastor or the office bearer, but also for the lay person that can just recognize, yeah, that person that sits behind me and they slip out just before the the last song. How do I try to make a connection with them? Again, the book is A Christian's Guide to Mental Illness. It's uh, co-authored by David Murray and our guest today, Tom Carroll Jr. I appreciate your work and labor and pray God's great blessing on your ministry, Tom. Hope the book continues to help a lot of folks get a good line on what mental illness is and if they need help to be courageous and and seek out some help. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you and wishing you blessing on uh, your ministry as well. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.